0: I've been thinking about what, uh, what I would be able to share with you this morning, things that I've shared with college students this semester or things that I've been reading in God's Word. And uh, it seems appropriate to me to, uh, to just start the, a little bit of this transition, which really is going to be a, a complete process. It's like, I, I don't know, giving birth to a child, but it, it takes, you know, two years instead of uh, uh, 12 hours. That doesn't sound like any fun to, to any of us. And so as I thought about what I could share with you, Uh, The topic of of unity uh, just continues to echo in the back of my mind. And and of course, the reason for that is that Al has had uh, a lot to say about unity in in the last few Sundays. I don't know if if you heard him uh, mentioning that in in his sermons, and I know I have heard him mention that several times in one-on-one conversations. Just sitting in his office, um, he would explain to me about uh, his role Uh, As being a a shepherd, part of that role has been keeping just all of the the diverse uh, interests of a growing church tied together in unity. And I I know in in my life, it's hard for me to keep my immediate family unified and moving in one direction. Uh, Sometimes that feels like an impossible task. And so from my vantage point, I think Al has done a good job with the important task of, of keeping a church unified, but how do we stay unified moving forward during this time of transition? Uh, you know, my instinct when uh, when thinking about a big question like that, of course, is to, to look backwards towards the counsel of of God's word. What is the instruction that God's word gives us in moving forward in unity? Um, the the early church, the very first Christians, I believe, had a very difficult task in establishing unity. You know, the first Christians were a mix of people from many different ethnic groups. They came from a, a wide variety of religious backgrounds. They were from radically different cultures at times, and they were a mix of the wealthy, the middle class, and even slaves. And so how, you, how do you take a, a diverse group like that and keep them unified? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, the apostle Paul writes, and he says, That the blood of Christ is what tears down barriers, and it's the gospel that dismantles the walls of hostility between people. And so this morning, I would want to present you with this big idea. This morning, I want to try to show you how the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ unite us. They give us a common purpose in this life, and it's greater than any division now and forever. Uh, Paul. Begins to explain those ideas in his introduction in uh, F- in Ephesians chapter one, this letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus, and in chapter one, there's a, a long sentence in the original Greek. It goes on and on and on, and I, it's almost as if Paul is is caught up. He's overwhelmed with explaining the blessings that we have in relationship with Jesus, and. I think those blessings in looking at Paul's introduction to Ephesians we will find that we have a unity of common purpose and a unity of all Jesus followers. So I want to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Get out your Bible, your phone, whatever you use to look at the scripture. And I'm going to read from Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 14, a little bit of a long uh, passage, but I want us to, I want to read through all of these verses and we'll go back and look at a few of these verses a little bit closer. Here's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Verses 7 through 14 say, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ, Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. First, big idea of the two that I want to share with you this morning is that we are unified by the salvation that Jesus brings. Um, in chapter 1, verse 13, I, I want to look at an idea that we are included. Um, with Jesus, by his saving work. And I want to do that by showing you about Jesus, what he does, this work that he does in redemption, by looking at the three verbs in uh, chapter 1, verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and you were marked in him with a seal. These three verbs are originally Greek verbs translated as hear, believe, believe. And marked. I want to try to, to show you the activity of Jesus in those three verbs. The first one, this language, um, the verb hear. Uh, what's going on in, in that word is the idea of being given the faculty of hearing or the action of removing deafness. And the picture that popped into my mind, I guess because I looked over in my office and saw some some junk sitting around that I should have put away. Uh, if I were to call one of you up on stage, let's say it's Andrew, Andrew, just sit right there. But if I call Andrew up here and I say, Andrew, I want you to put these earplugs, you know, deep into your ears. And I want you to put these, uh, uh, Samuel was wearing these when he went to go watch the monster trucks. I don't know if they'll fit over Andrew's head, but imagine that they do. <laughs> So Andrew's got uh, earplugs in and he's got these, you know, protective earmuffs over his ears. And I begin to to have a conversation with Andrew. Andrew, you know, how is your week? How are you doing? How is your family? How is work? Andrew is is deaf to the words that I I offer to him. Um, He's unaware of what's going on. But if I come and I unstop his ears, I remove those plugs from over his ears, I I remove the, the deafness Andrew can hear. Jesus removes our deafness. He gives us the faculty of hearing the gospel, of hearing his message. The, the second verb in uh, verse 13 is believe. And this is the, the idea that we are, are persuaded by convincing evidence. It's as if we were uh, on a jury, perhaps you or I were the, the foreman of the jury, and the most convincing attorney makes a case, and there's, there's no question. We are completely, 100% 100 convinced of the reality, and we believe. There's a a power in in understanding, being persuaded. And then the third verb in verse 13 is marked with a seal. This is the idea of a, a king's marker or a signet ring that would be pressed into wax or into clay. The imprinted seal carries the authority of the king, and it declares full royal ownership. So... Paul is highlighting in verse 13 the activity of Jesus again and again in the passage that we read and in verse 13, Paul shines a light on the gracious plan of God that he would act on our behalf to include us in salvation, that he undoes our deafness, that he makes the convincing case that we believe. And when we believe, we are marked with the full authority, the ownership that Jesus signs on the dotted line, You are mine. We're included with Jesus, unified by his saving work. I want you to think about a a contrast to that. I would argue that we are divided by efforts to save ourselves. If we're unified by salvation, if we are included by the work of Jesus, we will find ourselves divided by efforts to save ourselves. Um, Paul writes this letter To a church of people that he calls his holy people in uh, the very beginning paul says uh, the first few verses of ephesians chapter one paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god to god's holy people in ephesus god's saints in ephesus paul writes to to these folks and he says here's my message for you i want us to think about the saints in emporia if uh, someone were to drive by Um, out on 12th Avenue, and we were to stop a car, just, you know, send somebody, Andrew again. I don't know why Andrew. I send Andrew out with a flag to 12th Avenue, and he flags a car driving by, and he says, those people over in that building who are gathered together on a Sunday morning, uh, why? Why do you think those people are gathered together? What do you think people would say as they're driving by? Um, I imagine that you could find someone who would give an answer church is about getting together to follow certain rules, that church is about being good people, that church is about maybe raising a a good family. I fear that sometimes we try to become saints by working through Paul's instructions in Ephesians from back to front, even if we really know better. What I mean by that is in in chapter 6, of Ephesians, Paul writes, and he says, teach children to obey their parents. It's good counsel. In chapter 5, we read husbands and wives should try to love each other. In chapter 4, it says, work hard and tell the truth. I think that without meaning to, we can begin to live as if the gospel is be good, raise a good family, work hard, be honest, be good people, and earn the love and approval of Jesus wait. That's the very opposite of the message of the gospel. Even though we can sometimes accidentally find ourselves living this way, that's the very opposite of the message of the gospel. To try to earn God's love with our goodness is self-righteousness. And in addition to being anti-gospel, it is divisive. The saint of self-righteousness has to outdo every other person in order to prove themselves to earn the love of God, to measure up. Sometimes the self-righteous saint has to tear down others in order to measure up. It's not actually salvation, but a prison. And we can accidentally find ourselves thinking along those lines. We are not unified by being good people. We are unified by the fact that we are the rotting dead in our sin and we're made alive by the grace of Jesus. Grace-based salvation will always be unifying. It gives us that view that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. It gives us that understanding that that Paul describes and celebrates in chapter 1 in jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of god's grace we were chosen and you were included do you hear the the language that paul is using because of redemption even somebody like myself the apostle paul you know chief among sinners i was included and then he goes to the, the, the people in Ephesus, and he shares the message of redemption, and they were included. The language of unity is marked by God's great grace. So if we're unified by what Jesus does, if we're unified by his grace, I would say that we are also unified by the purpose that God has set out for us. Uh, Paul's emphatic about this in chapter 1, that the ultimate purpose of God is not our salvation, but God's glory. The praise of God's glorious name through redemption is repeated in chapter 1, verse 6, in chapter 1, verse 12, in chapter 1, verse 14. In verse 6, it says that we have been adopted into the family of God according to his plan and his joy in bringing about the praise of his grace. In verse 12, Paul says that the first followers of Jesus were part of God's plan to bring about the praise of his glory. In verse 14, it says that the Holy Spirit guarantees that the follower of Jesus is secure until the consummation of time, and it brings about a final praise of his glory. Uh, one of the books that I've used off and on in teaching our kids about uh, the, the basic doctrines of Christianity is a book called The New City Catechism. And it's based on a collection of the, the ancient ways that the church has taught um, through question and answer, taught the basics of Christianity. And one of the questions in that book, in order to question and then answer to learn the truth, says this, why did God create us? And the answer, to know him to love him, to live with him and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. That's the very purpose of our lives, that we would live to the glory of God. Uh, Part of the the implication of that is that there's no such thing as an ad hoc salvation. You are a part of God's plan. For his glory. Your salvation is not an ad hoc event. Ad hoc is literally, uh, it's Latin, literally translated meaning for this. It means made up on the spot or spur of the moment. You were not rescued from sin in a spur of the moment action. When did the plan of your salvation take place? Paul says in, in uh, verse 4 that this unfolding of God's plan, this unfolding of the very purpose of your life was before the creation of the world, that God had in mind what he would do before time began. It's not accidental, it's not ad hoc, it's not spur of the moment. Now, at the first moment that a person might uh, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that they might hear this message, begin to believe, to, to experience the change that happens through the working of the Holy Spirit. There is a a feeling that I reach out to Jesus and he rescues in the spur of the moment. But I want you to think about that language of of rescue. Maybe because I have grown up in Kansas and I live in Kansas, when I think of of being rescued, I don't think of Kansas. I think of the ocean. Maybe I'm afraid of drowning in the deep part of me or something. I, I don't know. But when I think of rescue, when I think of the language in the New Testament of being rescued from sin. I think of someone drowning in the ocean and those uh, great um, Coast Guard helicopters that that would fly out and rescue someone. So if we think of the the moment of salvation as being uh, a person reaches out for rescue and they're saved from sin, I want you to give some some more thought to that language of rescue. I like the picture that, that goes more like this, that if I in sin, uh, before uh, hearing and believing and being sealed by the Holy Spirit, if I were drowning in a symbolic ocean of sin and were to be rescued by Jesus, that rescue helicopter that shows up to do the rescuing actually left about six hours ago. And it's been flying at at top speed, and, and it rushes out to the point where someone is drowning. And sometimes these helicopters, they have just enough fuel to, like, make it so many hours as they travel, and they have to turn around and go back. So when they're they're the last drops of fuel before they have to turn around, they spot this person drowning in the ocean. And the helicopter swoops down, and as the person is beginning to drown, maybe it's the the last breath of oxygen expires, the head bobs, like, below the waves, a hand reaches out, and you are rescued. By a savior. That moment is powerful, but it's a moment that doesn't happen unless the helicopter leaves six hours ago, unless it had just the right amount of fuel, unless it flew at top speed to make the rescue. I think there is a a combining of the moment where we are rescued, but have to understand that this is a part of God's plan since the before the, the beginning of time. That his plan is not just to rescue you in salvation, but to rescue you and expose you to his great purpose. That his purpose would be not that you are simply a Christian and now free from the the wrath of God, but now you are ready to live out his plan to change the world. That that is what your very life is about. We reach out from sin, and Jesus, the Savior, rescues us according to his plan to bring himself joy, to bring himself glory, and that my life, your life, our church is a part of God's unifying plan to bring him glory. That's what I think of as the redemption that's described. That's what I think is the the heart of what's happening in chapter one, that that Jesus would be at work to show his love to us, to give us a, a purpose. Uh, you know, Al has used the phrase a lot about the, the last 10%, the, the key ideas that, that he would want us to hold on to maybe at the end of the sermon or end of a conversation. I think the last 10% for me in thinking about Ephesians 1 and, and verse 13, um, if you don't know uh, what you think about Jesus this morning... If you're still seeking for answers, if you're still trying to make sense uh, about who Jesus is, I would describe it to you this way. If you do not follow Jesus, you are living this life deaf and and blind to the purpose, the plan that he has for you. Jesus desires to, to unfold for you your very purpose and meaning. He desires to rescue you In the most loving way possible. And until you hear that message, until you have um, removed, the, until he has removed your deafness, until you have been convinced by the ultimate attorney, until you see that, um, you're living blind to to what brings true purpose and meaning. Now, for those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus, I think the 10% is like this. If you think that church is about being good, you've missed the point. If you think that salvation is the finish line of life, you've missed the point. If you fear that you have to keep being good to earn God's love, you've missed the point. You have been fully rescued. You are fully loved. And it has been planned forever. And in that, we bring glory to God. It is God's plan that we would bring him glory, that we would change the world, and that we would be unified. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, um, thank you that you are the one who opens our ears, who brings us sight to see what is true around us. Father, I thank you that your plan um, is a a plan that is convincing, that is undeniable. Father, I I thank you that when we uh, hear and when we believe that you mark us with your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit comes inside of us and dwells with us, um, giving us an assurance that you have signed on the, the dotted line of our lives. Father, I pray that in understanding those truths about our salvation that we would be a church that is unified. That the um, divisions of personality, the divisions of our our good passions would pale in comparison with the unity of understanding our common salvation. Father, I pray that not only would we understand your role in saving us, your work in saving us, but, Father, I pray that that we would be unified by your plan. Father, I pray that um, your plan of bringing yourself glory would be uh, the energy, the the driving power behind our work of, of restoration in our community. Father, I pray that we would be inspired by your plan to literally change our community, change our nation, change the world in the light of of what you have done for us. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be distracted by thinking that our lives are about us, but that we would see the life that you have given us, the provision that you have provided for us, as your plan since the beginning of time to change the world, to bring you joy, to bring you glory, and that we would be unified as a church in that. Father, I thank you for that. I ask that we would understand more fully your love and your pleasure in our salvation and the job that you've given us to do.